Fade In, Interior, Screenplay Podcast, Day. Welcome to the first 10 pages. We talk about screenplays, particularly the part that must hook the reader, the first 10 pages. Today's screenplay is the 2008 romantic fantasy, Twilight. You're impossibly fast and strong. You gotta give me some answers. I'd rather hear your theories. I have considered radioactive spiders and kryptonite. It's all superhero stuff, right? What if I'm not the hero? What if I'm the bad guy? I know what you are. Your skin is pale white and ice cold. You don't go out into the sunlight. Say it out loud. Say it. Vampire. My name's David Ferrier. My co-host is screenwriter Kia Wilkins. Hi, David. Oh, there's that power drill. Oh, great. <laughs> How bad is that on your end? Uh, look, it's fine. We can live with it. Um, and our guest today, she's a writer, a director. Her new film, Ellie and Abby and Ellie's Dead Aunt, is in cinemas. When does it come out officially? Uh, the official release date is November 19th, but there's a few okay. pre-screenings depending on where you are in the country. We well, just heard a voice there. It's Monica Zanetti. Monica, thanks for joining the show. Oh, thank you for having me. All right, straight off the bat, why Twilight? Or as Kia might ask, why, oh, why Twilight? <laughs> um, a common a common response. Um, look, it's, a, it's, it's hard for me to explain in a short story because it, it's a long story, but in a short version, it kind of changed my life. Um, it, like, it was the reason I became a filmmaker. Um, it's very much entwined in me coming out. It's very entwined in kind of getting me out of depression. And it was also around the same time that I was going through melanoma cancer. So there's a lot of reasons that I'm very connected to this film, um, but I have a very complicated relationship with it because it's, you know, I can see now how problematic it is, but at the time I didn't care. Can you exp- talk a little bit more about that? So you mean when this film, so this was 2008, all of those <clears throat> really massive life events, did they all sort of coalesce around the same time? They, it didn't all happen at once, but it was kind of like every time a different film came out, because there's, you know, there was five in the end of the saga, um, and every time a different film came out was around one of those times. But, um, you know, in the first film, the first time I discovered Twilight, I was, you know, incredibly depressed, working at a terrible job. I'd, you know, had this whole career plan of being a, a dancer, which you know, wasn't working out because, you know, the dance industry is very brutal and I'd kind of walk into auditions and they'd just be like, you've got the wrong body type, go home. Um, And so I'd I'd made the decision, oh, yeah, it's a brutal world. Um, And I'd made the decision to to not do that anymore. So I was just kind of working in an office job trying to work out my life. And I hadn't had any relationships. I just had really intense friendships and, um, you know, I kind of sunk into this depression and then... uh, I remember the film had come out and people were talking about it and a friend of mine recommended the book to me because she was like, you look like you need some escapism. And so I read it and it just completely, like at the time I was like, I don't understand why am I so obsessed with this book, which is just about this guy who's falling in love with this girl. Um, And really it's because I was falling in love with this girl. Like that's what was happening. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then I went and saw the film straight afterwards and it just like, it was like, it's so silly, but it's like one of those experiences where like my whole body kind of became rearranged. Um, and I know like Kristen Stewart for a lot of girls, queer girls was a big catalyst. Um, and I just fall into that stereotype. She was a big catalyst for me that I was like, oh, I'm gay. Um, so that, that was kind of a big moment. Um, and then I spent the next year and I, you know, I decided then I was like, and I think Catherine Hardwick who directed the film, um, she like released this director's journal about how she made the film and I bought it and I read it and it just made me be like, I want to be a filmmaker. Like, Like it just completely changed everything that I was doing. Um, And then I just spent the next year, like, you know, trying to learn how to write. I went and did some acting classes, like, but I was waiting for the second film to come out. Like it took over my year waiting for that. Like it was a a proper intense obsession. Um, And then when New Moon came out, the day that New Moon came out, the second book, that's when um, my mum first noticed um, the mole on my chest that was dodgy. And so, like, the day after I went to the midnight premiere, that's when I, like, went and had a biopsy and all that kind of stuff. And so that became entwined kind of in that time. So, yeah, like, just two, some just some pretty intense moments there. So you read the book first, fall in love with the character Bella Swan first, and then you saw the movie and Kristen Stewart. Yes. Was it was it a different thing or did it just reinforce this like no it this, reinforced you know, it was yeah. it was a perfect a perfect combination of like what my mind had created and what um you know what was presented and I think that happens a lot you just kind of imprint you know your perception of a character onto the actor which is you know why people were so obsessed with that franchise like I think a lot of people did that exact thing. I think most of them were doing it to Edward, but not me, <laughs> not this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't realise that was such a big a big part of it, that there was this sort of um, this following of the film for that reason. I didn't, I didn't yeah, know. Yeah, it seems to be something that's been discovered later because I remember because Kristen Stewart herself came out only a couple of years ago and there was just so many um like queer folk who were like I knew it <laughs> like I, there was something there like I didn't imagine that it was so um like I don't want to say validating that's not a fair thing to say but there was something about it that was you know so I think a lot of us kind of realized it in hindsight, like I think it felt like something that was a very private, personal thing. And then once she was out and like, you know, it was all in the public domain, it definitely, there was like a group collective of people that were like, oh, that makes so much sense to me. Wow. Well, you did talk about your uh, background a little bit then in dancing. I did want to know, like, how did you, how did you start out and how did you, you did talk about it a little bit then but getting to filmmaking and writing and then what led to you writing and directing your own feature? Yeah, so I just started writing, basically. I read screenwriting for dummies um, and kind of read a lot of scripts and that's what taught me, um, like, kind of script structure. 
Um, I started out by making a short film called Guardian Elf with my best friend, Jerry Hakewell, who was a much more successful actor than I was ever going to be. Um, and just making that one short film um, and I think writing that script and kind of realising that, like, my personal understanding of story came from from reading. Like, I always was a big reader. That's something that, you know, you know I'd kind of forgotten. Like, when I did start reading Twilight and got all obsessed, I was like, God, remember I used to read? Like, you know, all these things that you, when you're incredibly depressed that you've, like, forgotten that used to be part of your life. Um, and I was a big reader and so, you know, my kind of work around story structure came quite from a very like reading place. So um, yeah, so I just started making stuff. So I made a short film and then we like submitted it to Sundance, which was so cute because <laughs> it was, I mean, it's a perfectly adequate first short film. Um, but you know, you gotta have, you gotta have dreams when you're first starting. Um, and then I wrote a, Sydney Fringe play also kind of for my friends to to do um, called Still Seeking Other and that was about a dating agency and I'd never made a play like we just kind of worked it out as we did it but it ended up being quite successful like we sold out all our shows and we had to kind of extend which um, you know I didn't realize until I've tried to make other theatre later that that is just that doesn't happen very often and so I think I was starting to get this sense of like oh, I'm, you know, was kind of working out my voice and and what I had to say and, and working out, you know, that writing comedy, you know, was easier to connect people than, than writing drama. Like we had a very intense drama in the theatre next to us. We were doing ours in the foyer because we had no money, um, you know, and I'd see the amount of people that would come to our show compared to the amount of people that would come to their show. And it literally was just because, like, it was a comedy. Like people people want to laugh. And I think it's just such an easier sell. Like if it's bad or not well-written, you can, if people are laughing, they don't care as much, you know, you can kind of trick them. Um, and yeah, so I'd kind of had done those two things. And then I decided that I wanted to make a feature. Um, that was my next step because, you know, I'd read the Catherine Hardwick uh, director's handbook. So I knew and screenwriting for dummies, so I knew what I was doing. Um, I listened to, to lots of podcasts with um, filmmakers that had made, like, low-budget films and, you know, when they'd say, like, oh, we made this film for no money and I'd be like, oh, well, I could make a film for no money and not realising that what they meant was, like, a million dollars. Um, Did you happen to read Robert Rodriguez's uh, Rebel Without a Crew? No, I never read that one. Well, that's anyone out there wants to you know, hear what it's like to to make a film. He made like Desperado and and like he's made a bunch yes. of movies like that. Like he he made one during like the summer uh, while he was at film school and using just equipment from the university mm. that he took with him back to Mexico and just yeah. made a film and it's kickstarted his career. Yeah, and he kept it. He kept a diary. He kept a journal through the whole whole process. Oh wow. That does sound amazing. You know, I was listening to, I listened to a podcast with Lana Dunham when she'd made Tiny Furniture. So I remember yeah. that being one. And again, she was like, yeah, we just made this ourselves with no money. Not me not realizing that Lana Dunham's like incredibly wealthy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like her family is very rich. 
and, um, you know, and Brit Marling when she'd made Another Earth. Um, that was another one that, you know, I got really inspired by that film. And, and so I basically just convinced myself that we could do it. And I'd been starting to like kind of write these conversations, like just kind of observations I was having because, you know, like I said, I'd had all these things happen and I kind of was like, I'm going to write something about my cancer and my gayness. I'm just going to, I'm just going to write it. And it's going to be something small that we can film and we're going to submit it to Sundance. Like I was really holding on to that goal. Um, and that's what became Skin Deep, which is my first feature film that I wrote. Um it didn't get into Sundance. We did finish it, um, but it premiered at Austin Film Festival and um, it also got me an Augie nomination for Best Original Screenplay and that's kind of what kick-started my career in the TV kind of world is that I got to meet people who were making TV and then I was able to start getting some entry-level, lots of note-taking work. Who, who was the crew on Skin Deep? On, How many so, favors did you have to ask for and oh, call in? Many. Um, we did a crowdfunding campaign for Skin Deep, but it was when oh great, okay, yeah, crowdfunding was very exciting and new, and people were like, "Oh, what's this? I want to, I want to get involved in that." Um, uh, so my friend Rosie, Rosie Lord, who's now a very successful producer, became our producer. Um, that was the first thing she ever produced. She learned on the job and she was very good. Um, my friend Johnny Leahy became our director. He just finished at VCA and was looking um, to do a feature and that, and we met, sorry, he, he's my friend now. He wasn't my friend then. Um, we met after I'd gone on LinkedIn and typed in like, because I didn't know what I was doing. I typed in like cinematographers and to find a cinematographer and we got our cinematographer, um, Rodrigo Dawson, and he was friends with Johnny. And so we were like, the four of us was like the core crew. And then it kind of, it just kind of got bigger and bigger and bigger from there. And I don't know why people wanted to work for us for free, but they really did. And I'm really grateful. The, the naivety that you, uh, like what, the way you're describing is like, yeah, I can do this. Sure. No problem. And then, it's a, like it's Absolutely. it's astounding and impressive and even more so that you like you pulled it off you followed through and it has led to uh your career absolutely we went into it with like just the absolute like blind ignorance of just newbies that we like had no idea how hard it was going to be so i think that's what helped us make it that every step of the way it became you know, harder and the bigger it got, the harder it got. Like suddenly when you're dealing with distributors and real people's money and it wants to be released, there's, you know, and post-production, like all these hurdles that we hadn't, you know, we thought a friend's going to edit it on her laptop. And, you know, as it became something bigger than what we thought it would be, it would be like, no, this is going to do post-production in a post house and you're going to get some investors. And it it just, you know, it, it meant that we got a very beautiful finished product but it meant that I think it took like four years longer than any of us were expecting and it's definitely I'm you know absolutely thrilled with it and so happy we had that opportunity but I think if it had been laid out like that to us when we you know we just wanted to make this film with our friends um I probably probably would have been like oh we're not going to go it's too hard we're not going to do it so would you if you could go back and talk to yourself all those years ago would you encourage 
younger Monica to, to do it again? Or what, what, what advice would you offer? Well, I did do it again with Ellie and Abby. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I learned nothing. Okay. So you weren't put off. No. I <laughs> and it was like, it, it was, it was like, it did lead to things. It didn't just go, because I have talked about this with, with friends who are, contemplating similar sort of like just go out and do it don't wait for people's permission just go and do it and the fear is that you you spend all this time and effort uh for something that just sort of results in nothing yeah and I think you've got to know like for me I needed something to start my career and it it definitely helped like it and like I said like I made a film but I still then went and started in entry-level jobs like nobody gave me a TV mm. show to write or anything like that. It was, which thank, thankfully they didn't because that would have been an awful TV show. Um, I absolutely wasn't ready. Um, so it absolutely, like, I have no regrets about doing it. And when it came to making Ellie and Abby, I was so determined not to do it again. I was like, I don't want to crowdfund again. I don't want to do low budget. I don't want to be shooting it and then hoping that we're going to be able to piece together post-production and... Um, and that's exactly what what we did. Um, yeah, to a lesser degree this time, though, right? Like you had some. I saw Screen Australia's yeah. logo was on there, and you yeah. had some I, some help. There was some production companies. Yeah, I still had to make it first. So, like, definitely, we absolutely it all came together much easier and smoother and quicker. Like we we shot Ellie and Abby in April last year so it, it's been a real fast turnaround um but I uh, you know was taking the script to distributors because as if you would know in the Australian industry to get a film financed through Screen Australia and financed properly through those avenues you have to have a distributor on first like that's the first hurdle because they need to know there's a pathway to distribution and before a production company uh Yes. Well, you need to have both those things. Like you need to have a production company, but you need to have a, a distributor, someone who can release it. to. So and who is your dist- distributor? for? In the Ellie end, we Abby? ended up with Arcadia, who were really okay. wonderful, but we didn't have them in the beginning. So I was going to kind of like the other um, distributors um, and kind of pitching this script which they'd all be like, this is wonderful. We want to make something like this. And I'd be like, great. Um, I want it to have at least a 50% queer cast. And then they'd be like, ooh, that's really annoying. Like, why don't you just let us help you make money? You're just really being a pain. Um, And, you know, why don't you rewrite the mum and make it a dad? Because that's just much easier for us to get an actor who can sell a film. And, And I just was like, oh, man. I'm going to have to make it like I'm going to have to crowdfund it so that they can see, you know, they they can't see it. I can see it so clearly, but they can't see it. Um, And so we crowdfunded the shooting budget, shot it on what we had crowdfunded. And then, um, and then I got on a plane to Cannes film festival two days after we wrapped with the, with a trailer that we'd cut together and I just went and I just met with everyone that would meet me, distributors, sales agents, um, Screen Australia, because Screen Australia was there. That ended up being a really wonderful thing. And basically I came home like five days later from that trip and I had like 
we'd had like the initial conversation with Screen Australia. We had our post-production deal. We had like, um, and we'd started the conversation with Arcadia who became our distributors. So that all kind of happened. It happened very quickly after we shot it, but I did still have to, to shoot it first. So you, so you still, you shot this film again with no guarantees that it was ever going to see the light of day. Yeah. And then another interesting detail I feel like I just heard there, you met up with Screen Australia at Cannes? It's the best, it's the best way to do it. <laughs> the queue is shorter. Yeah. All right, Monica, I really, really feel like I could ask you questions about filmmaking and the way you've, uh, you've, you've forged your career all the live long day. We should move on to Twilight. But before we do that, we're just going to take a quick break. We're back, Kia. Yeah, no, I just wanted to add before we switched into Twilight that the film, I don't think I actually said, watch the film. It's gorgeous. And anyone listening should absolutely go and check it out when it hits cinemas. And we'll put a link up uh, to wherever they can find session times in their local area because, yeah, I have, I'm not at all surprised that it's connecting with audiences the way that it is. It's an absolutely gorgeous film. Thank you, Kia. Ellie and Abby and Ellie's dead aunt. What is it uh, a wide release or do people need to look up where, because like absolutely have to see this in cinemas um, because we've got to save cinemas for one thing. We do have to save cinemas. Um, It's going to be, look, it's going to be reasonably limited. I think there should be at least one screening happening in um, every state uh they are there are more tickets being announced kind of as we go but i know definitely um uh, alice springs adelaide sydney and canberra are on sale now and oh and gold coast yes so there are the ones that are definitely on sale now and then there should be more but we've actually got a website which you guys can link to and that will have all the screenings as they become available excellent is the website ellie and abby and ellie's dead aunt.com it is ellieandabby.com.au. Twilight, let's do it. The screenplay. Uh, Twilight by Melissa Rosenberg, based on the novel by Stephanie Meyer. We have the shooting draft dated February 11, 2008. So uh, we've gone over your relationship to the Twilight franchise. Did it sustain itself through all, what was it, five movies? Um, by these, because they cut the last, book into two films into two. they love doing that harry potter yeah hobbit harry potter i think harry potter had done it first and probably had yeah. more reason to do it um by i do remember that watching the fifth film that i some love had gone like i didn't buy gold class tickets to see it i just saw it in a regular <laughs> cinema um i did still buy it on dvd um to add to my collection but <laughs> There was, and I think by then I was starting to kind of be like, I don't actually think Edward's a good guy. Um, <laughs> oh, this actually makes me a little bit uncomfortable. So I I had started to notice its problems, I think, mm. by then. He's yeah. pretty controlling. Um, yeah, no, he's, he's awful. He's also yeah. 140 or something, which is yeah. deeply weird. <laughs> and if a friend was like, yeah, I'm seeing this guy, he's amazing, he loves me so much, he sneaks into my room and watches me sleep, I'd be like, no, get, have him, you know, arrested. And he's constantly resisting the urge to murder me and drink my blood. Yes. Yeah. No, it's not <laughs> what a hero. It's all very bad. It's, so it's what, a very what, relationship. What do you think Twilight is about besides horny vampires? 
Um, it, it is about and being horny for vampires. Yes, and it's obviously, um, you know, it's it's a love story, a classic love story. Um, overbearing man falls in love with girl who thinks she's not good enough and can't understand why anyone would love her. Um, it deals with a lot of things, and this is where you start to be like. And I know Stephanie Meyer was always like, "I don't let my she's a Mormon, she's like I don't let my religion, you know, influence my my writing." But there's some real strong, you know, you know, the themes of abstinence and celibacy and all that kind of stuff uh, in there. Um, it does go into a classic love triangle situation with Jacob. Spoiler alert: the werewolf. Um, but yeah, as it's, if you're asking like what the themes are, um, <laughs> you'd have to go with, yeah, longing and, you know, what would you, what would you die for? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what do you, what do you make of it? I know you're a huge fan. Yeah. And, and look, I'm not, uh, I'm not just going to shit all over the the film like it doesn't I, it doesn't do anything for me um but i was really i was really glad that you chose this because i think it's interesting to i'd never read it i'd never watched it i had an opinion about it without you know without having done the work um and but it is it has been such a phenomenon so i'm glad that i was given a push to read it and to watch it and to try and understand. And I think it's really interesting what you were saying before about it, you know, what was going on in your life and how that, how the book spoke to you and then the film subsequently spoke to you. I think it is the kind of thing that has enough universal elements that people can put what they want onto the film and it can, it can speak to whatever they're going through. Um, because it is such a classic, you know, girl in a new school feeling misunderstood. There's a lot of angst. Her parents don't understand her. You know, all of those things are going on. Um, and, yeah, and that's why people have read it as a as an allegory for Mormon, the founding of Mormonism or for abstinence or for racism or for sexuality and all sorts of things have been sort of applied to, applied to the story. Um so I think that's interesting. And, uh, yeah, I'm fascinated with how much it blew up and, and also, interestingly, how much good it did in terms of um, female for female filmmakers, you know, because it really did change the game. Catherine Hardwick, you know, opened the gates for The Hunger Games. They were like, oh, teenage girls are a huge market. Um, we, sure. should, we should be making films for them. And it turns out, who would have thunk it that... Um, women are the best people to make those films yeah. and yes and they they're going to make us a lot of money in in the end so yeah. but then yes it also does have all of those um all of those problems those sort of anti-feminist issues yeah and well and then the big problem being that once it did blow up the rest of the franchise was all directed by men and you know Catherine Hardwick yes. did a really good interview about you know she'd done twilight as this huge breakout of success and how she just couldn't get hired after it. Like she still couldn't find someone, like people weren't like throwing scripts at her to come and direct like it, like they would have if she'd been a breakout, you know, 
young man. And I think it was it was really interesting observation. And anyway, I still think Catherine Hardwick, of all the things that don't hold up, um, I think Catherine Hardwick still is a very is a really good filmmaker. Yeah, Thirteen is an awesome movie. Oh, I love Thirteen. I didn't. I didn't yeah. did that. Yeah, that was her kind of breakout. Again, one of those sort of low budget, as you were saying, but it was probably you know ten million breakout for Evan like Rachel Wood as well. Yeah, she's a star maker, Catherine Hardwick. She spots young yeah. talent and Nikki Reed, who was in Twilight. So yeah. yes, look at that. <laughs> the first ten pages of Twilight. This is how it begins. Fade in, exterior, rainforest, Olympic National Park, Washington, dawn one. Moss draped, shadow drenched, tortured tree trunks twist upward, reaching for rare sunlight. Bella, voiceover. I'd never given much thought to how I would die. That's how it starts. Now, I don't know about you, but that's all I need in terms of like a hook. We don't need to go on. I'm in. Yeah. Talk about like a great first line and immediate sort of tone setting in the big print. Yeah, absolutely. Love it. And really, like, had a huge influence on me as a filmmaker, this voiceover. Skin Deep was filled with these voiceovers. Um, not one of them made it through the edit. They all got cut. But, look, I uh, I wanted them in there. I think it's a, a thing of, you know, so often when you adapt a book that is first person, there's so much that you can't access that you know an audience is going to want and you end up doing a voiceover narration because it's the best way to include all of the good bits. Yeah, I think it's a very underrated tool and we, you know, we should have more voiceover and things. I've got no problems with it whatsoever. (laughs) More voiceover all around. Uh, We're on page one. We're in a forest. We get a POV of something hunting a deer, pursuing it at what seems to be an unnaturally high speed. When caught, the deer, uh, in the big print, is described as abruptly plummets out of frame at an unnatural angle, leaving the white glare to fill the screen. Hold on whiteness. We then fade into the face of Isabella Swan, 17, long dark hair framed alabaster skin. She's vulnerable, introverted, in perfect beauty. The screenplay like immediately screams young adult novel in sort of the tone that it's uh, mm. written in. What do you make of that style of writing for a screenplay? It reads like it's meant to be read, not just like a blueprint. Yeah, absolutely. I think it does. It's, you know, you. it is kind of like, and I guess this probably comes from adapting a book and how hard that is to do and that a big part of your, I, I personally would also be like, I'm just going to take this lovely chunk of descriptiveness and I'm going to copy and paste that straight into my screenplay because it is a hard job and this has already done some of it for me. Yeah, it reads really, like Melissa Rosenberg, you just... Even on that first page, you're like, this is someone who's been doing this a long time. Like, it's so, it's just so clean and classic and it just takes your hand and just guides you right through. Like, even that transition out of the sort of the forest thing, the way it transitions you into the next scene, like, you absolutely can see how that is supposed to be directed and it and it comes out on screen exactly as written. And that, to me, is just, you know, tells mm. you that you're in safe hands pretty much straight away. Across page two, yeah. uh, two, Bella's voiceover continues as she tells us the details of her life. She's leaving her home in Arizona. In the script, there's a moment with three tanned athletic blonde girls in a convertible Mercedes. 
the big print says their flawless bought and paid for beauty contrasts with Bella's pale naturalness. They wave blonde one. Good luck at your new school. They ad lib superficial good wishes. Don't forget to write. We'll miss you. Bella waves back sweetly, but half-heartedly as she steps off the curb. Have a good and trips. When she writes herself, they're already gone. Life. Clearly not close friends. Bella's grown-up demeanor and innate intelligence become apparent. She lives with her mother, who is eclectic, scattered, anxious, more a best friend than parent. Her mother's boyfriend, Phil, is helping with the move to a place called Forks, where Bella's dad lives. On page four, Bella arrives in Washington State. The big print describes nothing but deep, dark green forests for miles. Over it all hangs the mist from the ever-present cloudy grey sky. Everything is wet and green and drenched in shade. We find Bella in a car next to her dad, Charlie, the chief of police in Forks. He's taciturn and introverted like Bella. Their strained silence contrasts Bella's relationship with her mother. They exchange some strained, awkward banter about the length of Bella's hair as they enter the city of Forks. Population, 3,246. Bella sighs. Here's a quick question. Uh, Forks, real town? It is absolutely a real town. Um, I have not been. Did I think about it? Yes. Total quick Google, total <laughs> boom in tourism, unsurprisingly. I bet. I bet. The official Twilight tour. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, on page five, they arrive at Bella's new home. The screenplay tells us it isn't stylish. The only new thing here is a flat screen TV, but it's comfortable, lived in. Bella's room is filled with childhood remnants that have seen better days. She's overwhelmed with loneliness and is on the brink of tears when there's a honk outside. A faded red truck circa 1960 pulls up. Bella runs down to find her dad and the driver, Jacob Black, 16, a Quileute Indian, amiable, with long black hair and hints of childish roundness in his face, and Jacob's father, Billy Black, whom is in a wheelchair. Billy teases Charlie for not shutting up about how excited he was that Bella was coming back to Forks, which is in stark contrast to how he has been behaving. Billy and Charlie are clearly close friends. Jacob and Bella also have met before, but not since they were little, making mud pies together. We learn that the old track truck is Bella's homecoming gift and that uh, Jacob rebuilt the engine. Bella is stoked. So far, so good. So far, so good. Page six, we already know, like, a lot about, you know, her background and her fish-out-of-water, like, setting. Yes, and that Jacob is um, going to become very important, I think. Um, Yeah. You know, introduced quite early before Edward, so, you know. On page seven, Bella rolls up to her new school. Her loud belching truck turns heads as she pulls into the car park. Bella is mortified and steps out of the truck straight into a puddle, soaking her sneakers. Bella stands out as the new kid in this small school, but people are nice to her. The first to introduce himself is Eric, who calls himself the eyes and ears of this place and offers her anything she needs. He lets her know that there will be a feature on Bella for the school paper, which Bella cannot stand the idea of, so Eric scraps it. On page eight, While awkwardly playing volleyball, she meets two more kids her age, Mike and Jessica. Jessica asks, aren't people from Arizona supposed to be tan? Bella replies, that's why they kicked me out, making Mike and Jess laugh. So that, like, at this point, I am, like, uh, me, I'm personally really enjoying it because it it feels like they are uh, avoiding, they're resisting the worst of the tropes of weird new kid at a high school. There are no jocks slapping books out of, palms no like group of mean girls it feels more like what would actually happen if someone who looked like Kristen Stewart started at a small high school like people would be like intrigued and want to know her 
and like, oh, she's like good looking and like we want to take her in. Yeah, it does have a, um, I remember when I was like watching the film um, and like, and reading the book and the introduction at Falks High School and me being like, oh God, I wish that's what it was like when I had started a new high school. Like that, this place sounds cool. These kids yeah. sound cool. And like Jessica was um, uh, Anna Kendrick, yeah. like so cool. What a friend to have. Yeah. It was like, it's refreshing because I just kept waiting for the other, because I think we've been so trained by other, like, not always bad movies, like other high school movies that at at some point the other shoe is going to drop and someone's going to, like, betray her or do something nasty. But um, I don't know. I I like, I really liked it. In fact, like, that's Twilight loses me when it gets to vampires hissing at each other on a baseball diamond. Like if it stayed in the high school and was about that dynamic, um, I, like I, that could have sustained two hours for me. It didn't need to go full fantasy. Yeah. For me. <laughs> didn't need the vampire subplot. You just want to know about forks. Like, no, yeah. And the high school sort of like dynamic and the like Edward could have been there and he could have been a like the vampire thing still could have been there, but just keep it in the high school because there's something about that, that dynamic. And also in the movie, they're, like they're such great actors. Like they've got such great mm. chemistry and like a natural banter. Mm. Uh, anyway, that's my two cents about it. Yeah, no. Any other thoughts? I'm happy to hear your thoughts. Yeah, it's interesting. Like for me, <laughs> obviously some of those characters go on to, from what I can tell from publicity materials, become quite pivotal characters. Um, but for me, like... Yeah, I totally agree that they've avoided some of the archetypes, although I would argue that the sort of nerdy guy being the tour guide to the to the school isn't, you know, mm. most. I but said most. <laughs> for me, what what it kind of ended up doing is that they were a bit like generic group of friends. Like I recognised Anna Kendrick, which helps, you know, immediately just she stood out, but I couldn't I couldn't tell you anything about those characters, like what who they were, what their personalities like were. Like they were just sort of and the gang, but I couldn't, they, they didn't have individual personalities apart from Eric who, you know, has a bit of sass and a bit of, you know, he's a bit unusual. So it, it didn't work entirely for me. I'm, I'm not sure I'm on the, on the same page as you, Dave. On page nine, Bella is with Mike and Jessica, Jessica and in the cafeteria. Eric joins them. Another friend, Angela, snaps a photo of Bella. Sorry, needed a candid for the feature, says Angela, to which Eric snaps back. Feature's dead, Angela. Don't bring it up again, before turning to Bella to say, I got your back, baby. On page 10, the inciting incident. How perfectly timed. Uh, this is how it reads. Bella's POV, the double doors of the cafeteria. They swing open as four as the most astounding people Bella's ever seen enter in slow motion, the Cullens. Two guys, two girls, all chalky pale, purplish shadows under their eyes and all devastatingly beautiful. They move through the room with effortless grace and take a seat at a table furthest from Bella's. Bella leans over to Jessica and Angela. Bella, who are they? Angela, the Cullens. They are Dr. and Mrs. Cullens foster kids. They moved down from Alaska, apparently. They're together, like together, together. Rosalie and Emmett. Alice and Jasper. On page 11, Bella sees the last uh, Cullen to enter. Edward, 17, described as lanky and with untidy bronze-coloured hair. He seems inwardly turned, mysterious, more boyish than the others. But the most striking of all, Bella can't take her eyes off him. So that's the end of the first 10 pages. Monica, are you hooked? Um, 
Uh, look. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hindsight's so funny, isn't it? I mean, look, okay. I no, I'm not, which is so interesting, isn't it? But um I mean, it helps that I'm like kind of replaying it in my head and I can like, because I saw it so many times, I can like hear the music and I can, you know, um, you see all the characters. But it's just now so, and I say this as someone who has just written a high school love story, um, it's so far from what I'm interested in watching anymore that it hasn't had the same hook that it's having on me. Um, nostalgia, absolutely. I've, I'm feeling incredibly nostalgic, so I'm I'm being very careful not to um, not to confuse these two things. But one thing, and I know Kia touched on this before, but as we're going through, because I'm I've got the script up in front of me, and as I'm like reading it as we go, it is reminding me how well this script is written, um, which is very different to when you revisit the books now as an older person and you realise how terribly they're written. Um, you know, no, Stephanie Meyer is fine. She's very rich. Um, <laughs> she's she's fine. Um, but this script is really beautifully written. It is, yeah. I think it, it, it reads better than because I watched the film after reading it and, yeah, I think it, it's better on the page than on the screen. Oh, you know, I was just going to comment too that the thing in the film I remember too that also as we're going through and I'm being reminded that that really I think pulls you in was also the soundtrack. The soundtrack to this film is actually quite, I think, incredible and had a lot to do with, um, you know, the watching experience of it and the connection to it, I think, too. It's a, it, Rob Pattinson did a lot of the soundtrack, didn't he? Doesn't he have a few original songs in there? He has two two original songs in the soundtrack, yeah. And, and pa- is it Evanescent or Paramore or one of those? <laughs> Paramore. Paramore. It was Paramore. Yeah. There were some bangers. They were bangers. It was an album of bangers. That's exactly what it was. <laughs> did, you, did you also own the album? Yes. I owned all of them. <laughs> <laughs> what a, what all kind of, of question is that? <laughs> Okay, we will get into the next 10 must-mentionables and uh, just talk more broadly about what Twilight has to answer for uh, after we take a quick break. All right, and we're back. The next 10 pages. If you could give a reader another set of pages, Monica, after they've read the first 10, uh, which would they be? Now, when I say pages, it could just be another paragraph, another line, could be more than 10 pages. Just the, the all right, you've read the first 10, now read this. Which, uh, which part of Twilight would it be? Oh, this is, this is tricky. Um, that there's a whole um, sequence where she goes um, prom dress shopping or dance dress shopping, except she's not because she's decided she's not going to prom, Bella's not going to prom, but she goes with um, Anna Kendrick and um angela the other character um and that it's just like a nice sequence of them all and anna kendrick has some really great like one-liners that are really you know that are always good um and it's definitely it's definitely one that i'm thinking of that is much more like visual this you know and i I think a dress montage is like it's such a classic um, high school film trope of like trying on dresses, but 
This one is just, it's, it's quite sweet. It's very beautifully shot. It's much more simple. Um, there's some paramour going in the background. Um, and, you know, because it's all like filmed in Portland, so it's all, you know, very grey and I just really enjoyed, it was a scene I really enjoyed watching. It was one of my favourite to watch. And so what do you think that offers to a reader, assuming they haven't seen the film? It offers nothing to a reader. <laughs> <laughs> but is it is it is it just like, well, look, this still has like, a, you know, a beating heart. It's not just crazy vampire fantasy the whole yeah, time. Yeah, it's like... It, you do get these nice... It's like there's still some nice moments of female friendship in this film that is otherwise dominated by um, lust and, <laughs> and this guy. Um, I think that's also something that's really nice. It's like he's not part of that sequence. It's a sequence that's about them. Um, otherwise, of course, the next thing I'm going to say, go read, is definitely some of, like, the kissing scenes. Like, that's you know, that's what you're there for. That's where it's at. Yeah. Does, and, like, does it translate? Like, on the – do you get a sense of it in the screenplay? Definitely. You absolutely do. Of the tension mm. and how long, like, it takes to happen. Um, and then when you go and watch that scene, it is very, like – you know, this script and the book version of The Kissing is much more innocent than what it kind of is on the screen. And I think that's like kind of everyone watching it was suddenly like, whoa, this is a bit more like, and it's awesome because <laughs> mm. you're like, oh, this is going to be, this is much more like, it's much hotter than, it's not as innocent as what it seems. Um, once you separate the him watching her sleep and all that kind of stuff, if you can separate the two, which, you know, mm. often now I can't. But as a reader of a script, it is, um, that's the other place you should go. How about you, Kia? Uh, I think, for, I mean, this feels like an obvious an obvious one, but I would go straight to the climax, you know, the big showdown, which I think is uh, page, page 92. And I think it just, if you're going to show people, like, this is where we begin, it's just a regular, like, this could be any new kid at high school movie, any sort of falling in love for the first time movie. And this is where we end up in this warehouse where there's this psychotic vampire playing your childhood videos back to you and they're flying around and smashing mirrors and, um, you know, sucking venom out and oh, not venom, crazy shit going on in that climax. I think that would be the next sequence. I would go like, this is where, this is where we start. This is where we end up by my script because um, it's going to be a wild ride. Must mentionables uh, in this segment. You can't talk about Twilight without mentioning dot, dot, dot. I'll, I'll kick us off. The Twilight effect. 100 million books, $3 billion at the box office. Uh, Twilight is directly responsible for Fifty Shades of Grey. It has a lot to uh, answer for. We really went through like a number of years that uh, I'll call the Twilight years. <laughs> Yeah, I'd, I'd add the Hunger Games to that list and the Divergent series and all of the. I think they all. Are it kicked off the yeah the young adult franchises coming out left, right, and center. Some more successful than others. Mm. It also got a lot of young people reading. I think that was thing. I mean, you could also um, mm -hmm. say the same for that very other popular book series, which shall not be named. Um, but there is. <laughs> 
um, yeah, that it got there was a whole generation of young people that started reading because they'd finished reading that and then they'd, um, you know, because I used to work at a bookshop as well and then they'd come in and be like, what else, you know, I need to read something else. So it kind of was this momentum and while I think there was like a point of view of it being like, you know, oh, but they're reading like this silly book and this silly series, um, you know, it, the it's like that doesn't matter. The point is that they're reading and they're enjoying it and they can keep reading and, you know, moving up and moving along and all that kind of stuff. It did give us Fifty Shades of Grey and that, look, that is <laughs> that is unfortunate. You can say the same things about those books. I understand. I don't want to be a snob from one to the other. Um, but, uh, yeah, and I think, you know, also all those actors, I mean, it kind of, like, I think we've seen it, it kind of destroyed Robert Pattinson. He's only really just emerging now it created and destroyed him at the same time because before mm -hmm. that he'd only been in harry potter as cedric diggory yeah and that kind of fame sounds just awful yeah and he's done everything possible chosen the most obscure indie films to try to distance himself and i feel like he is starting to succeed with that you know and having come all the way from the lighthouse to um the latest Christopher Nolan movies back and now he's going to be Batman. So that's right. Come full circle. He's got the career <laughs> you always wanted to have. Um, and we also have to mention, I, I can't talk about it without talking about uh, Cheating Gate, which um, for those who don't remember, Kristen Stewart and Rob Panson were together, whether that was real or fake, who knows, but they mm. seemed to be a very real relationship. Hey, they um, great chemistry on screen. I think. Yeah. Like, and I think that's part of the reason it works. Like you can just feel the like sexual tension. Absolutely. And you, you know, that happens all the time that you fall in love with someone mm. that you're in that, you know, very, very easy to believe mm. real. Um, and then the photos emerged of her with the director of Snow White, which paparazzi had taken, you know, in a invasion of privacy. Um, and that, you know, kind of was the end of their relationship. It was this huge this huge thing um and yeah i just was like i i can't <laughs> i have to mention it because i can't talk about that without it's it's part of the world for me it's part of the universe one of the must mentionables for me is the baseball game like it is so strange to me it's bizarre she she went i've invented this world and these you know this law that and, and within this world, mm. what do I most want to see these vampire creatures that I've created do? Baseball. Obviously baseball. And, the, and the, that kicks off kind of the third act is, you know, all of the peril starts because they went and played this game of vampire baseball. It is, it's such a weird U-turn in tone. It, it, it really threw me. I know. It's very wholesome. Yeah. <laughs> Team Jacob and Team Edward, like that, you know, got to mention that. I mean, even just saying those words, it, it feels so uh, like it's such a oh, yeah, forgotten thing now, but that was a whole bit of T-shirts and all that stuff. And um, speaking of Jacob, Taylor Lautner, I feel like he, you know, he got catapulted in the same way. Um, doesn't seem to have worked out quite so well for him. And I always felt bad, but I always thought he was like, a good actor deserves a, a better career than what he's had so far. Yeah, yeah. hoping it, you know, mm, it can still good come boy. good. He was shark boy. <laughs> he was. 
It was when he popped when he when he popped up in uh, Ridiculous Six, uh, the Adam Sandler movie. I thought, oh no, it's gone <laughs> off the rails. <laughs> and he arguably is the most talented out of all of them. Like he's yeah. so lively and alive on screen. Like whenever he comes on screen, you're instantly like kind of breathing again. Like you can relax watching someone who is also quite relaxed and just naturally, you know, enigmatic on screen. Um, but yeah, who knows? Maybe he was just done. Maybe he's just like, nah. I'm I mean, out. none of them have to work. I've again. looked it up. He's been. He's in some series. Yeah, I've got yeah, all that's... The money. Let me just live with yeah. my trillions of dollars and yeah, have a nice mm-hmm. life. I, I hope they got some some points on the back end. Uh, but you're right. Yeah, they, that's a, he's a very nat- like he was just very naturalistic. Yeah, very uh, very like easy to watch mm-hmm. act. Yeah. Kia, any smart cuts? Anything that didn't make it to the screen that you think was uh, a smart uh, cut? From didn't make a note of any smart cuts. Um, None no. jumped out? No. That's all right. We can move on. I do have the trope tally, but it feels like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, it's just the first 10 pages, so we, or, or maybe that's your point. Yeah, the, fir- the, the trope tally of the first 10 pages. <laughs> the whole high school. Uh, yeah, high school just... as a trope. The, I, I do. I always love though. This is a trope that I'm quite fond of. Is that when they transition you out of the character's you know normal world and into the strange new world, and and that journey is what um, the titles play over. I always love that. Just some aerial car shots with the credits rolling, and it's like, oh, they're not in Kansas mm-hmm. anymore. Like here we no. go. We're in Forks, Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, love that as a trope. Yeah. Don't know why it just feels also, like classic cinema. It's very shining. Yeah, it's there's a great soundtrack moment in that part in the mm. film too, which Ooh. again is also a good trope: is to pull out one of your best songs and have it over that sequence. What song plays over that one? I knew you were going to ask me that, and do you know how terrible it is that I've forgotten? Um, That's right. I just thought it might be at the tip of your tongue. <laughs> yeah. But everyone who is a fan that's listening to this will be like, it's that song, you idiot. Um, I didn't remember it was number two on the soundtrack. So Look it up on Spotify. Okay. Or you can watch it. The film's on yeah. uh, Netflix in uh, in Australia at least. Okay, any any final yeah. notes for the screenplay? Any final uh, post-its you want to stick on any of the pages? Well, th- this isn't so much a, a note on the screenplay, but something that fascinated me in and I find this fascinating just about the whole kind of Hollywood studio system. But prior to uh, Melissa Rosenberg um, writing this version of the screenplay, which is very faithful to the book um, in, in all the ways that matter, there was apparently another with another studio rounds um, in which Bella escapes the FBI on a jet ski at some point, that is one famous thing that has been leaked about that version of the screenplay. And it just fascinates me that there is this other version of Twilight out there that exists in someone's hard drive that could have just changed. Yeah, like we're saying, that what if it had, that we wouldn't have Fifty Shades of Grey or Hunger Games or like it could have just completely sunk the entire franchise and not been what it is. So can you repeat that? Because that sounded bonkers. Uh, so this the tidbit that I was able to pull about this previous version was that Bella at at one point in the film escapes the FBI on a jet ski, 
And I can't even imagine in what context, like how different it would have to be to arrive at that moment. Yeah, I'm like, trying to. Yeah, are the, are the FBI evil vamp- vampires? Are they from the? <laughs> were they playing baseball at a beach? And there was a. Yeah, maybe that's. Wow, we got to find those pages. Yeah. It's out there somewhere. Finding the missing Twilight yeah. draft pages. It will be out there somewhere, <laughs> and that is <laughs> that is a beautiful thing that it exists. And someone also got paid a lot, a lot of money to write that book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We did it. Twilight. Done. Monica Zanetti, uh, Ellie and Abby and Ellie's uh, dead aunt. Again, what's the release date? Uh, November 19th. November 19th. Look it up. Check it out. Thank you so much for joining the show. Really a great fun. Oh. I had a good time. Thanks for, thanks for indulging me. Yeah, that was fun. Thank you. Fade to black. The end. <laughs> <laughs>